everyone, welcome back to Here to Project. Super pumped to join us today to have Caleb Jackson, where we're talking about miracles and evidence for miracles. What's up? How are you doing? Yeah, Zach, thank you for inviting me on. I'm excited to, to talk about this stuff today. Yeah, I'm super pumped. So we're just gonna be talking about like miracles and like the ideas of like is there evidence for miracles? Is there good evidence for miracles? And looking at some objections. So if you get into it, Caleb, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm an independent researcher, currently just got out of college, um, studied political science and communications while I was in college, but I have an interest for theology and, and history as well. And so I've uh, written two books. One of them was on the resurrection. It's called Undead, a historical investigation to the most famous miracle in history, and that's on Amazon. And my second book is also on Amazon called Searching for Solution to Suffering, and that's about um, theodicy and the problem of evil. So um, both of those are that. And so... Um, the book, the research I'm currently doing, as as one could guess, is on the topic we're discussing today, miracles. So um, I kind of got into that by um, starting with my resurrection book. And in, in the last chapter I had in that, I talked about miracles and whether or not one can believe them. And it was a pretty short version of what I'm doing now. Um, but I gave a few examples in that book and then moved on. Um, but my curiosity kind of peaked and I was like, well, I wonder if there's more on this. So basically the the book I'm working on right now, which hopefully will be out by this year at some point, is basically a... Um, probably like a 500 page extension of, of that one chapter. So um, I'm, I'm excited to see how that turns out. Yeah, I'm super pumped. And it's fun to see like the more resources coming out on miracles, like your work's coming out. And there's people like obviously Craig Keener, or, like JP Moreland, or like all these people that are doing work on miracles. Yeah, I just so got I'm... Craig Keener's new book as well, if you want to recommend that yeah you really see like a shorter version of like the like two volume works so that's mm -hmm. a lot nicer um so, so i'm curious caleb what got you interested in like researching and thinking about the topic of miracles yeah so i mean it's kind of like what i i, I kind of already slid into that as far as researching my first book on the resurrection really got me interested in the topic as well but it was also the idea of just wanting to see if there was any empirical evidence for for christianity because typically a lot of it's based on philosophy and i like philosophy but i feel like when I talk to people, empirical, empirical stuff that's observed is just more interesting. And I think it's more accessible to, to the average person. It's also because a lot of most of the arguments in favor of theism only get you to direct theism. Um, there are theological arguments and philosophical arguments for Christianity specifically, but they're not very um, well, they're not very well known in, in the lay circles, at least most times people just appeal to the resurrection and say, if that's true, Christianity is true. And I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it but it's also the idea of just miracles in general are for religions one can believe in a god and not believe and be a deist and, and not believe in a particular religion but miracles are necessary to believe any of the major ones at least islam has muhammad getting uh revelation from gabriel uh judaism has you know moses receiving the the ten commandments and spilling the red sea and of course christianity has the resurrection of jesus and so it, if one can't believe in miracles then we may believe in a god but really who cares about this God if he doesn't care about us if this God doesn't answer prayers and doesn't doesn't do this then what difference does it make whether or not this God exists I think most people believe who believe in God believe in one who answers prayers and cares about them and interacts with them so the question then is does God interact with the world we have today and I think that's an important question and most theists would say yes and so then I think the question of well what about miracles then you know does God really answer prayer and so forth so those questions I think are important and I didn't see them discussed as much as I think they could be. Um, in fact, there's actually a survey. If you go on, I think it's Phil papers 
um, you know, has a lot of academic papers uh, on arguments for God. And the argument for miracles was, I think, the least discussed out of the main ones, out of cosmological, ontological, theological. Arguments for miracles had the least amount of papers published on it. So I feel like this one isn't as discussed as, as some of the other ones. You don't see that many channels covering it as well. So it seemed like kind of a niche market that I think most lay people haven't really looked into. So, yeah, that's all that kind of sparked my interest. Yeah, that's super cool. And there's a couple of really interesting things to me as you talk, Caleb. One is this idea of like, if miracles exist, well, then we have really good reason to think that there would be like a personal God. So like you could take a philosophical argument and become like a mere like theist or deist. But then if you have this like data from miracles point towards miracles, then oof, it's gonna be harder to just be like, I say, be like a deist who thinks God doesn't interact with the world. Uh, so I really like that. I think that's really helpful when thinking about uh, these things. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think that we are both in agreement there. And that's, that's something that, uh, I think is important to establish, you know, one could be a, um, a deist. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. And, and what's funny about Thomas Jefferson is that he had a, he had the Bible, but he, he kept the sayings of Jesus, but he took out all the miracles because he thought that was silly. So, um, he, I think that just kind of establishes a lot of what people say today If well, Jesus was a good teacher, but you know, I don't believe all the, the walking on water and stuff, you know? Um, and so it's, it's almost like that, that's that we have to throw that out, but we have to mine for what's historical. And I think that's not necessarily the right way to approach history in general. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Another thing that you brought up that was interesting, that escaped my mind for a second was the idea of like, um, it's being the least, the least talked about argument. So if you think about things like miracles or like arguments from religious experience like i personally think of these as like super powerful arguments and sometimes like even more powerful than like your traditional arguments for god because it, it gets you really close to a personal god if you have good data like if you have really good reason to think that like miracles are happening or like re religious experiences are genuine then oof, it's gonna be a really good case for god you can make and we're looking around the world i mean i think people like you and me would agree like there probably is a lot of good evidence to think these things happen which we'll be talking about shortly so just thought that was helpful yeah yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. So then I think it's helpful at this point, Caleb, to talk about the idea of like, what is a miracle? So how would you define what a miracle is? Yeah, so I think people equivocate the word miracle a lot where they want to say, oh, uh, we won the sports game today. It was a miracle or, oh, I got to work on time. It was a miracle. And that's really not what it means in, in traditional philosophy. A miracle is not just something that's improbable, but it's something that is impossible without the intervention of God. And so typically we have laws of nature. We know um, how things operate. We know that if I were to um, pick up this paperclip and drop it, it's going to fall. Um, if that paperclip failed to fall and just hovered there, that would be that could be a miracle. That would be contrary to the laws that we suspect. And so the reason God does these miracles is because he wants to get people's attention. Of course, God could heal people and do all these things in other ways, but then people don't notice them. And so when you see people doing miracles in the Bible, they're usually with prophets and they're usually um, with associations of messages. And so Jesus claims he's God. Well, OK, anyone can claim they're God. What's the proof? Um, talk is cheap in this sense. You know, actions speak louder than words. So if someone on the street told me he was God, I probably wouldn't believe him. If he started doing miracles, I would at least take him a little bit more seriously. Um, and so if, if these are things that only a God could do, or at least only a supernatural being could do, that at least gives you good reason to think the person performing them has some kind of correlation with the supernatural. And so, and so that's typically how that's, how that's viewed. Hmm. So you're fine with saying like, would you say like an idea of a miracle being like something that's like a supernatural event, like you're fine with that kind of definition for defining like what a miracle is? Supernatural event into the natural world. Yeah. I mean, we can't detect a supernatural event if it doesn't interact with it. But if, if God or an angel or whatever supernatural being you want to posit is interacting with the world, um, that would be it. 
um, another way to say it is like, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis gave the example of a, a person who puts, sorry, I was adjusting my camera, a person who puts money in a safe and then walks away. Now we know with the laws of physics that if that safe is locked, that money is not going to disappear. It's not, it's going to be there when you come back. But if you come back and the safe is open, the money is gone. You wouldn't say the laws of nature have been violated. You'd say the laws of England have been violated. And so in that case, you know, if someone came in, they opened up the safe and they took the money out. Um, I think God is doing the same thing with our laws of nature. Cause we have to remember that the laws of nature are only applied to closed systems. So it's true that the laws of nature hold if you have a closed system if there's nothing intervening, but if there's stuff intervening, if there is a person who can open the safe or whatever, then that would be a miracle. We've actually been able to break laws of nature. We've been able to slow down the speed of light. We've been able to violate the second law of thermodynamics for a very short period of time with certain atoms in laboratory settings. So if, if people get involved, we can violate the laws of nature. And I think God is doing the same thing. The only difference is not the action, it's the agent. So one is with it. If it's us doing it, it's not a miracle, but if it's God doing it, it is a miracle. So that that's a point too. If if we go and cure someone of a of a disease um, that they would otherwise die from without medicine, that's just our intervention. But if God does it, and He does the same thing to their body biologically, but He doesn't actually give the medicine, but He does the same thing, stuff the medicine would do, then that would be a miracle because it's God doing it. So that's just kind of another way to look at it. Yeah, that's super helpful, and I appreciate that, Caleb. One thing I'd love to talk about before we get into the idea of like why we think there's good evidence for miracles is this idea of like why we gotta be interested in doing miracles in the first place. Um, Cause you know, we can point to different, like different scientific data or like medical cases that may like point to miracles, but be curious, like from your perspective, Caleb, let's like grant that like God exists. Um, and obviously we're like, we're both Christians. Like what interest would God have in doing miracles in the first place? Like what, do you have an idea of like what kind of purposes they may serve or something along these lines? So I think the there are two main reasons for God to do a miracle. One would be to do something that is charitable and within his nature that's that's an act of mercy or love. So the most common thing would be curing someone of a horrible disease or you know giving someone having someone pray for for financial security and then receiving it or something like that where um God is doing something that we'd expect a benevolent God to do because he's a good God. And so that might explain why people in other religions may also get healed of diseases when they pray. Um, we don't necessarily have to think God is just picking and choosing between religions or denominations. Um, the second one and the more important one is to affirm a message, typically a theological message. So if someone's saying they're a prophet or someone is trying to spread a certain gospel or certain religious message, um, miracles can back that up and show that this really is from God, especially if they're competing. And so this is, you know, most commonly seen with Jesus rising for the dead, for example. Um, what I don't think we can say is a miracle is just weird anomalies that don't have any religious significance or don't have any kind of charitable significance. So, um, you know, an example I just give is like if a unicorn suddenly appeared in the middle of Times Square and was able to breathe fire, I would say that's really weird, but I don't know if I would say God performed a miracle because I have no reason to think God would want to create a unicorn in the middle of Times Square just to mess with people. Um, it just seems a bit strange that God would do that. And so when you have just these kind of weird miracle, uh, you know, weird supernatural events that people report, even if they were true, and I'm not saying that we should always grant they are, even if they were true, we would say, okay, so what? why, why think God is behind that? So um, religious context is definitely important for that so we shouldn't just say anything is god because we can't explain it it depends on whether or not we think that um, a person is appealing to god through prayer and that god would be interested in answering a prayer so mm, that's super helpful so i'm curious then caleb at this point you've done a lot of research into like miracles and like is there any evidence of miracles so obviously like you're convinced there is good evidence to believe that miracles happen so what is this some of that evidence caleb that you think shows that there's good reason to think miracles happen yeah i mean there's uh, 
a lot of examples I could give. And I have, I think when I, the, the, the draft I've seen so far, I have well over, I think 130 pages of just cases. That's not even counting commentary and review of them. And that's only for one section. So when you look at all of them, it, you know, it would take a while to do so. So it's, it's hard for me to go into like the extensive nature of that in general, but um, just a couple examples, I think that um, some people could give um, there was one of a, of a boy named Robert Gutherman. And as a child, he suffered from deafness and he had to get surgery to where they, they cleaned out most of his ear and they had to actually remove a lot of the bones within his ear um, because this was it was infected and it had been eaten away, deteriorating. And so um, he did this. Doctors told him he'd have se severe hearing loss for the rest of his life and that he would probably never get it back. Um, but his, uh, I believe one of his family members prayed for him. She actually prayed to, one, uh, to, a, Catholic, to a, um, a Catholic figure at the time who was later made a saint. And uh, immediately afterwards, her son be able to uh, begin to hear again. And the doctor said this shouldn't be possible because we removed all of the nerves and all of the, all the bones in your ear. When they looked back in the ear, the bones were start, were already partially formed and starting to grow back, which isn't medically possible. And as they kept observing, the bone eventually was completely restored and his healing was completely normal again. And this was medically documented. His doctors reported on this and the Vatican investigated this for years and eventually the the person who was prayed to in intercession was canonized as a saint um, and now i i also preface by saying i'm not catholic um but i have a whole section on catholicism and i think it's very um very interesting i think there's lots of good data is that another one um from a a different context would be uh Dwayne miller and what's interesting about this one is it's actually on film you can go on youtube right now and, and look it up on on online um, and Dwayne miller had had I believe it was some kind of pneumonia or flu or, or, or some disease, but it had eaten away at his vocal cords and, and permanently destroyed them. He saw over 60 doctors, including many specialists in Sweden, and all of them told him that his voice was probably never going to come back. He was extremely hoarse and his nerves were damaged. And they said, you're probably going to lose your voice at all, uh, entirely within the year, year and a half. And he was a pastor as well. So he spoke for a living. And so this distressed him as much. And he said, well, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to become a mute, I'm going to spend my last year I have preaching God's word. And so in 19, I believe it was 1993, he's giving the sermon. And again, this is on audio if you want to look it up. And as he's giving the sermon, he's preaching on one of the Psalms and, he, and it's talking about how the Lord heals. And he says, look, this doesn't always mean physical healing. I'm disabled uh, and, and this is not something that's curable. And I know that, that, that and I've accepted that. And I know that God heals us spiritually as well. So even though God won't heal, heal me physically, I accept that he's healed me within my heart and saved me as a person. As he's saying this, the, his voice starts to come back and he freezes for a second and he, he, he doesn't know what's going on. And his voice literally becomes normal again. And when he was looked at, his vocal cords were completely healed. And this was in, within a matter of seconds too. Typically remissions, you know, take long time. Um, and this is, you know, you can look this up. So it, it's that, that's super fascinating. I believe he's still a pastor today. Um, but that would be another example. And there's plenty of other um, medically documented cases we could look at. I would recommend looking at... Um, a book by Dr. Candy Gunther Brown called Testing Prayer, which is published by Harvard University Press. And she has lots of medical documentation um, in her own book. And one of the ones that she talks about briefly is a man named Arthur Manning. Uh, I think, think that was his name. And Arthur Manning had been going through pretty severe versions of cancer, stage four that had um, metastasized, spread through his body. 
uh, chemotherapy had been tried, but it kept remitting back. And so they canceled chemotherapy because at that point, his immune system was too weak where he was going to be too sick. And so they said, okay, we're going to have to give up treatment. It's not working. You only have a few months to live. Um, so, so Arthur has a, uh, one night has a vision of a man in white appear before him, telling him that he is not, he is no longer sick. And he quotes a, a verse in, I believe, Nehemiah. Um, thou art not sick, which is kind of a pun because his name is Arthur. So he would be called Art. And he believes this was Jesus who appeared to him. So the week after this happens, um, he goes back and he's completely cancer free um, with no evidences of tumors whatsoever. Uh, now, the poor thing was to note is that cancer does go into remission sometimes. But when you look at remissions, uh, first of all, we don't always know what causes them. So that, that's one thing. Sometimes it can be with immune systems, sometimes with infections, just depends on the kind of cancer. But remissions are typically very gradual. So if typically someone, it may take them several months, you know, about 18 months or so, and that's with chemotherapy. Spontaneous remission, usually the tumor slowly gets smaller and smaller over months or years, and that's considered a good remission. Arthur Manning went from completely infected with cancer and dying to completely healed within one week. And that is far faster than what is normal remission. Um, you could give other examples as well, where you have things that typically do heal on their own, but happen so quickly that you couldn't possibly say that it's a natural thing. Um, one last thing I'll say is there was a man named Carl Cockerell, who uh, I believe in the early 2000s slipped on ice and shattered his uh, ankle bone pretty severely. He said it was the worst pain he'd ever felt. And he was in the military, so he'd gone through a lot. And um, and Arthur had uh, gone to the doctor and they did a radiograph and they said, yeah, your bone shattered and, and we have the radiology report. Um, but he also had a vision of Jesus appear to him and say, your foot is not broken. One week later, when he goes back to the doctor in his home state, um, when they did the test, it shows that his foot not only isn't broken, but was never broken. They couldn't find any evidence of that. And he, and he holds up the radiology report and says, but doctor, look at these extra stuff. And the doctor's like, yep, I have absolutely no idea how to explain that, but uh, your foot's completely healed now. And so, yeah, we know that bones can heal, but when you break a bone, especially shattering it, you know, you're going to have to be put in a cast. You're going to have to have all of these, um, these preconditions and it usually takes months or several weeks at least in months to heal you don't have broken bones healing instantly with uh, you know over a week's time or less over a few days um that's just not how how remissions work and so the speed of healing is important as well and the fact that we have the context of this with jesus appearing to people telling them that is all is all the more to, to mention so that those are all cases that are medically documented um, by doctors and i in some cases i have the, the reports or i've seen them or i've seen the x-rays so, and I try, I have some of them in the book, pictures of x-rays of certain people. So yeah, I think those are just a very small handful of, of many examples I could give. And if you watch other shows I've been on, I give other examples. I try to mix it up and not give the same examples every time. So yeah. Yeah, that's super helpful. So thanks, Caleb. So you've talked a little bit about like these um, extensively documented cases where it seems like there's really good reason to suggest a miracle would occur. So I'm curious, like, how would you see the role of maybe like less documented experiences. So I'm thinking about like the idea of the global experience of most people over time of reality of miracles. Cause I think if you like poll most people, not poll, but talk to most people over time, they'd say, yeah, miracles happen. There's a supernatural like aspect to reality and not just uh, like an impersonal and different kind of foundation. So I'm curious, do you think that can play a role in building a case for the reality of miracles? Well, I do. I mean, there's millions of people who report miracles. Um, in fact, they actually did a poll that said 55% of American doctors, these are American doctors, these are not doctors in, in third world countries, uh, believe that they personally have seen a miracle and 75% are open to it. Um, and so you hear people say a lot, these things only happen in third, third world countries. And while that is true that a lot of them do happen there, um, 
people say that like it's a negative thing when they also don't mention that the vast majority of sick people also live in third world countries. I believe it's around 80% of people who are blind live in developing countries because it's obvious because the medical technology just isn't there. So that's why you have more sick people. So of course you're going to have more healings where there's more sick, sick people. Um, but that's, but you're right. These are reported widely. And most of the ones I have are from the first world just because the documentation is better. Now, um, I'm not cynical and I do try to be careful because on the one hand, I do want to be open and accept what people say. And there are people who are missionaries who I know, who I trust, who tell me these things. And I have no reason to disbelieve them. But at the same time, I want to be careful and I want to have a fair standard. And I also know that people sometimes exaggerate things or misremember things or, or misdiagnose things and sincerely get it wrong. And on more rare occasions, sometimes they, they deliberately lie. Um, but I think we need to have criteria for assessing these things. And so when people try to say, well, what about this religion? They're about this religion. Um, we shouldn't take all miracle claims equally. I think we can say some are better evidence than others. And if you look at the other videos we've done, I was on um, Exploring Reality's channel, Fan Christopoulos, um, on his channel. And we, we did a whole stream on that where we went over the criteria needed. Um, not to say that it's true. Um they may not fit this criteria and still be true, but that we should just use just to be to be careful. So stuff like that includes like how long after the event was this reported? Uh, was this seen by one person or by many people? Was this only seen by people who were already predisposed to believe this or, or were there actually people who were outsiders who were critically investigating it? Um, stuff like that. I think that's pretty objective criteria, not just stuff that favors Christianity. And so I perfectly admit that there are accounts from missionaries who I trust that I personally believe that don't fit that. And I don't say they don't happen, but I, I don't think it's the best place to start. So um, if one person saw this in a backworld country, they don't have any thing but testimony. I, 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 I would believe them because of the basis I have on, off the other accounts. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't go, go to that as my like best case or anything. So mm-hmm. we just have to be careful. But there are there are cases I know where people get stuff wrong and they unintentionally think they're healed when they're not. And that's, I think, a very dangerous thing. And I, and I want to avoid that. And I never advocate that people should choose prayer over medicine. I think you should do it with medicine. But uh, if you're healed, please go see a doctor and verify it before you think you are. Because there are cases of people who, for example, been prayed for and thought they were healed of seizures, stopped taking their medicine, and then died a few days later from from a seizure. And that's tragic. And that should never happen. So um, you know, just please make sure that you are healed and uh, don't do that. And sometimes people, what people also don't do is they also don't always follow up. So there was one new story, uh, I think 2012-ish, 2012, 2013, of a man who was dying of cancer. And he goes uh, and he wants to spend his last couple months uh, helping build up his church, helping reinvest in his church and, and doing construction work for them. And while he's doing this, his cancer goes away. And all the new, all the local news stories called this a miracle, right? Because context. Um, but what a lot of them didn't report is a few years later, he ended up, the cancer came back and he ended up dying from it. Um, but people don't report that. So a lot of people read the original story and, and use this and share it. And they don't look into it and see that, you know, it, it kind of came back. Um, there's also a, um, a pretty well-known book by Rex Gardner called Healing Miracles, where he does a lot of pretty interesting cases. And the year, he, although the book is good, the year he published the book, two of the people died because the diseases came back. So you just have to be careful to do follow-ups and, and make sure that these people stay healed, you know, years later and that they really are diagnosed correctly. So there's just a lot of stuff to be careful of. But I think once those controls are put in place, yeah, we can absolutely be open to, to miracles. 
Awesome. That's super helpful. So thanks, Caleb. I'd love to get into now some of these objections that we talked about with regards to the nature of miracles. So one of them is just the idea that like miracles just go against the regularity of nature. Um, so this idea of like, we have this like noble natural order that proceeds in a noble way and miracles try to go beyond that saying there's something that goes beyond this regular world, which you seem to experience. And, you know, so how would you respond to this kind of objection to the nature of miracles? Yeah, well, I think that goes into one of the earlier questions of of laws of nature only apply to closed systems. And so if you have reasons to think there is an agent interacting with it, then there's nothing wrong with that. Um, We have, again, we have violated laws of nature in laboratory settings before. And so there's no reason to think that a God who's omnipotent and knows how to do that would do that if he so desires. Um, Another one is that people generally say that testimonies are reliable. And so even if even if we had evidence for a miracle, the, te- the, 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 the it's more likely the testimony would be false than it would be for the laws of nature to be overcome because we have so much evidence that the laws of nature don't change. Um, and people, when people say testimony is unreliable, they're partially right. But again, it just depends on the conditions. We can control for that. Um, for example, if people saw this from far away in bad lighting, then yeah, it's probably not reliable. If people were in stressful conditions where they were in danger, where there was a gun, like with burglaries, people, the memory's often not, not reliable. But if you factor in those things and know how to control it, if this is a slow event that happens repeatedly, if there's lots of witnesses, the probability that it's misremembering goes down. And so if you can control for that, we can say testimony is in fact reliable. And I think the biggest problem with, with this argument is that what people don't think of is that testimony actually overcomes um, the laws of nature that we thought were real all the time. In fact, when you read most science papers, um, unless they have photographic data and stuff, you weren't there to observe the experiment. There were plenty of scientists who observed this and you have a, a, a organization who claims that they peer reviewed this and maybe replicated it. And we have to go off for their word. We didn't sit there in the room and watch them replicate this. We have to take their word that this was all on the up and up. And we should, because there's many, many, many different people who are trustworthy, who are reputable in our eyes that, that we have no reason to distrust them. So there are lots of really weird things that don't seem intuitive that seem to go against our understandings of laws of nature, like quantum mechanics, which is not always, you know, causal in the way that we think it is. And that sounds really weird when you hear it, but we also have a very large number of scientists who said they've observed it and we have to say, okay, that's not intuitive to how I think, but you know, I, I trust that I trust that kind of testimony. And so, yeah, you can have a, a credible enough testimony to overcome what is initially improbable. Um, like one funny example of this is that David Hume, he, he's the one who originated this, right? Well, actually it predates Hume, but he's the most famous one espousing it. And in that same essay, Hume also talks about how not only there's these primitive people who say they see miracles, but there are these explorers who talk about seeing these fantastic beasts on, on their travels. And we know that's not real because we've never seen them. And what's funny is that in Hume's day, he's writing in the 1700s, they thought that Komodo dragons didn't exist. They thought mm-hmm. that gorillas didn't exist. They thought lots of animals that we know exist now didn't because at the time, these were just stories from tribesmen and they thought this was just like mythology. But when Europeans finally discovered them, they realized they were correct. And so um, we can't just say, well, I've never seen it, so it's not credible. If you have enough credible people who have seen it, um, that, that can that can overcome it. And we were, in fact, in a debate. When I say we, I mean um, Eric Manning, who runs the Testify channel, who's also a great channel. You should interview him sometime. Um, we were in a debate with counter apologists on this topic of miracles. And I kind of pressed him on that of saying, well, you know, if we had enough, he said, well, I would have to see it for myself. And I said, so you wouldn't trust the testimony of like many scientists and stuff. And I asked, so like, what if the, what if the person's doctor said that they saw this and, and had medical evidence? And he would say like, well, I would probably just distrust the doctor at that point. And I was, and that just kind of made me step back. I was like, really? Like, are we, if it gets to the point where we're saying, yes, the multiple doctors looked at them are all lying. 
or mistake. Like, I, I think that seems like a bit of a stretch at that point. To, you have to be pretty committed as a conspiracy theorist almost. It's the exact same way that flat earthers think. It's the same way anti-vaxxers think when they think, oh, yes, all of NASA is lying or all of big pharma is just lying to us. I just think that seems like a, a really bad rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. I, I trust testimony if enough people who are credible are saying that they saw this. So, mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Thanks for that, Caleb. I think one thing also to add on at this point mm -hmm. is that if it, like – the occurrence of like the reporting of the belief in miracles is a very regular part of the world. So it's not like this like fringe group of people in some corner of Minnesota are saying that miracles are happening and no one else does. It's really a global phenomenon. So I think that's also super valuable to add when thinking about this thing. So another objection here at this point, Caleb, I'd love to talk about that is just this idea that there's just no good evidence. Um, I think a lot of people online will say something like this where we just have it. There's no like proof of a miracle. Like there's no healing of an amputee or something like that. All we just have is things that could have natural explanations and things like that. So how would you respond to this kind of objection? Well, first we have to have criteria of what is a good, right? So the, 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 the thing that I've experienced that a lot of people do is they'll say that, and then they'll, you'll give example. Well, they'll, they'll say this stuff doesn't happen and you'll give examples and they'll, they'll change it and say, okay, fine, this does happen, but we just don't have an explanation and, that, and that's not enough or, or, okay, fine. They were healed, but this could have been spontaneous remission or, or misdiagnosis. And, uh, you know, you see that. So it's a moving of the goalposts, which is fine. At least they're getting closer to that. Um, but so we have to define what criteria we have. So in the book, I try to give criteria of what we're looking for. So it, if it's a disease that has otherwise doesn't have a cure, if this is something that is um, healed in a religious context, if this is something that is healed um, extremely fast and, and including faster than a natural remission, um, which is why I gave the examples of like broken bones healing in a few days or a few or, or, or less than a week. Um, we know very extensively how long bones take to heal. Um, we also know how long, you know, muscle atrophy typically takes lots of physical therapy to, to overcome in a few weeks. And yet we have accounts of people who go from atrophy, who go from atrophied legs to having full calf muscles in literally seconds. We also, we also have medical documentation again of, of tumors disappearing within a few days. We have, there's eyewitness accounts of some people say it's literally seeing, tumors and boils and wounds shrink before their eyes or close before their eyes. And so although these may be things that can go away naturally, they can't go away that fast. And so that's something we have to take into account too, is how fast did this happen? Um, and if it's, it's faster than, if it's much faster than is naturally, that should make us suspicious as to whether we can really say this is some unknown natural, natural mechanism if prayer is shown to make it more efficient. So that's something that, so those are just things you have to point out. Oh, and what did the person stay healed? You know, look at that. So I think if we have those criteria, then we, then we're justified in saying this is a, an, an, uh, an otherwise um, naturally impossible miracle that we don't have any evidence that it is natural at this point, at least it goes against everything we understand about how natural healings work. Um, but as far as like limbs growing back and stuff, besides many anecdotal accounts that we have, and, and Keener talks about a couple of them, um, we have some medically documented cases of organs growing back. I have a couple in there. Um, most well-known probably Bruce Venata. He uh, had his he had most of his intestine removed um, after he was crushed by a truck in an accident, and he was prayed for. And when they did the when they when he, they performed surgery again, they saw his intestine. They also did scans. Um, he, his intestine had I think grown by about three times its normal length and it can widen, but it can't lengthen. So that would be analogous. You know, the only, the only organ that can regenerate itself like that is the liver. Um, there's also cases of a, um, a boy who had a hole in his heart. 
And, and now these can close over time, but his his hole closed overnight, which is much faster than, than it typically is. Um, I also have an X-ray of a, a man who had a lot, most of his he had most of the one of the hemispheres of his brain removed because he had tumors on it. And um, he became a Christian after a near death experience. And when he went back to the doctor, um, his brain had completely regenerated. His doctor thought the tumor had come back, and so they did the scans, and it showed, nope, this is definitely his real brain, not cancer. And his doctor had no explanation for how that's possible. So we do have examples of that. Um, oh, there's another one that was actually reported in a uh, Pentecostal newspaper of a uh, man who had, uh, I forget what, what, I think he had, had tuberculosis or something, but he'd had surgery on his side, and he had had three, three ribs removed and most of, his, most of one of his lungs removed. And in uh, a big hole in the side that it had to be, you know, that was, he had like a tube in it. And he went to uh, a, a healing evangelist named A.A. Allen. And he didn't even believe A.A. Allen. He, he, he thought he was a fraud and he was just going to entertain himself. But he saw a woman in front of him with a baby who had a tumor on its head. And he saw the tumor literally shrink before his eyes when A.A. Allen prayed for it. And so that opened it up. And so he goes up there and as A.A. Allen prays for him, uh, he sees that the side in his, the side in his, I'm sorry, the hole in his side has completely closed. And when he goes back to the doctor, they do these x-rays and the x-ray shows that there are ribs and a new lung in there now. And his doctor says, you got the wrong x-ray, go upstairs and get another one. And he, and he comes back with the same one. And, he's, and his doctor's like, that can't be possible for you to now have a lung and all your ribs back. Um, wow. So that was one. But there actually is, um, there actually is a case of an amputee getting a leg back. Uh, now it's fairly old. It's from the 1600s, but it's extremely well documented. In fact, David Hume mentions it in his essay. Um, he just hand waves it away, but I have a whole chapter on just that one case. I was going to put it in the section about regenerated body parts, but it became too long. So I just said, it's going to be its own chapter. And I actually, I think I call the chapter like the best documented case in history or something, but to give a short one of that, I've done, I did a whole video on it. So if you want the details, go see that. But it was a man named Miguel Pisser. In 1637, he had gotten in an accident with a cart, a farming accident. His leg was gangrened and amputated and buried. Um, he became a beggar for two and a half years. He got a license to beg from the cathedral because you had to have an official license to beg to show that you were actually disabled and poor. Um, and uh, in 1640, he has a dream. Uh, he would he would also rub holy oil on his stump as well, by the way. I forgot to mention that. He had a dream that he was rubbing holy oil on a stump like he usually did. And he had a dream that the Virgin Mary was there. And when he woke up, his leg was completely restored. Um, it was, now it was a little bit shorter and, and contracted than the, than it was. Um, and that's because when you, uh, cut through bone, it's a little bit shorter. So when it restores back, it gets normal. So over the course of a few days, the color came back into it and the bone restored. And what's also interesting is that we know that, uh, from replantations, when people get surgery to get limbs stitched back on, that's how it happens. Usually when it's stitched back on, it's blue because the blood flow isn't there. And then it gets longer as the bone grows back. So it's consistent with that. And so the, the church did a whole investigation that lasted for about a year. They they went to the court, they went to the um the uh, courtyard of the hospital where they buried the, the leg in a box. They they would usually bury it in a box like a common routine. And the, the box was empty, hadn't been unearthed. And the leg that was on the leg that was on him now had the same scars and bruises and birthmarks as the original leg did. And it also now had a huge scar under the knee from where he got amputated. Um, and so they go to the doctors and the doctors are uh, testify under oath that they knew him personally, that they amputated his leg, that they buried it and then they had treated the leg. They had, you know, burned it with, with, with fire to create the stump to stop the bleeding. And that he kept coming back to them for years to get medications and stuff. So they knew him very well. So we have all this testimony from his doctors. We have all this investigation. This was also seen by Anglicans, by people who really hated the Catholics, um, and they didn't deny this. They just said like, oh, I met that guy who had his, and I've seen the scar and it's really weird. Um, he actually ended up getting to meet the king of uh, Spain. 
because he became like a local celebrity. And the king of Spain went down and, and kissed his foot. And, you know, this is a peasant. So the king of, of Spain kissing your foot is a pretty big deal. And so and, and we have scholars at Oxford at the time in England who were discussing this and debating whether this was real. We have German doctors who saw this. So we have lots and lots of testimony. No one denies that something happened. Um, and you'll see theories online that discuss this. And I go into a lot more details to the problems with those. But just, to, yeah, that's just a short version of I think we have a pretty interesting case of, of an amputated limb. And so I think the burden of proof then is on the skeptic to show what the problems with this are. I, I don't think they're, they can just say, well, I don't know, but it can't happen. So something must have happened. Um, I think we can say, here's a really compelling case. You know, what's what's your what's your explanation for it? So. Yeah, dang, that's super cool, Caleb. Thanks for bringing that story up. Um, one more objection that we'll bring in here is we kind of hit at this earlier, but maybe just if you have anything else to add on this idea of like, why would God be interested in doing miracles in the first place? Thinking that like God could be like creating like really heavy rocks or black holes or stardust or all these things. Like, what interest does like an all powerful God have in doing these miracles? Yeah, well, I, again, I think miracles get our attention for one, but I think God wants to have a relationship with humans, and that gets into. Uh, arguments from natural theology as well, but I think that God loves his creation and that he's selfless and so that he wants to to show his love to others. And I think part of that is by showing us that he's there and that he does answer our prayers and that he cares for us. I think if God, granted, God does not always answer prayers. Certainly no one says that, but he does answer them frequently, I think, and frequently enough for us to know that he's there and that he cares for us and that, that he's looking after us. And of course, God's not a genie that just granting us wishes um, he has his own. He has his own plans in mind. Has his own intentions, um, but we can still. But I think. I think it's there to show us that he is not just a deistic God. I think he is there to show that he has a message that he gives people revelation, that he gives scripture, that he is backing people who make claims. Um, and I think also a, a big part of these miracles is that they cause conversion. In fact, a lot of people don't know this, but the leading cause of conversion for the first couple hundred years of history of Christian history, and this is reported by secular historians as well, was belief in miracles. Um, huge portions of the Greek uh, of the Greeks and the pagans uh, converted because they saw Christians healing people. Irenaeus mentions a church in, in what's modern day France where they would raise people from dead pretty regularly, and the Greeks actually would call uh, people who converted to Christianity witnesses of a miracle. And so this was the main cause, and this is actually still the main cause today, especially in the third world. J.P. Moreland says up to 70% of conversion to Christianity of church world of church growth in the world is because of signs and wonders. Craig Keener says that in China, that it's between 50 to 90% of conversions are because of, of miracles. Um, if you look at the, uh, I have a whole chapter on visions of Jesus and uh, particularly in the Muslim world um, and other places. And in some Muslim countries, you'd be amazed at how high the percentage is. Sometimes it's 33%. Sometimes it's like 40% of Muslims who convert to Christianity do so because they thought Jesus appeared to them or they thought they saw a miracle involving that. So the thing that makes Christianity unique is not that they're, they're not the only religion that claims miracles. Certainly that's not true. But I think they are the only religion you can say that the majority of their converts convert because of miracles. And so if we're going to grant that God is behind at least some of these miracles and we're asking what are God's intentions, well, it looks like God's using miracles primarily to to convert people. You know, if people in in India who are Hindu see Hindu miracles and they already believe in Hinduism, we can say that's great. But what's the significance of that? You're just reaffirming what they already believe. But if God were to perform a miracle with the intention of making people convert, or at least doing it where he knows they're going to convert, we probably should consider that maybe the, the message they're converting to is something that God wants us to, to abide by. So um, I think that's that's something important to say.
Yeah, right on. No, that's super helpful. So thanks for bringing it up, Caleb. What we're going to do now is for about 10, 15 minutes, get a little bit of Q&A. So if you have questions, we'll get through some of those. And obviously, if we get a super chat, we'll do that first. Um, but one like common objection, we kind of hit at this earlier, Caleb, is this idea of like, how do we deal with like miracles in other religions? So like we're both Christians, but how do we deal with like miracle claims like Islam or Hinduism or other religious beliefs? Yeah, that's a great question. It comes up a lot. So um, again, going back to the criteria thing, first of all, I think we shouldn't always believe, and this is, this is for any religion as well, but we should always ask the details. So how many witnesses do we have? How long was this reported? You know, when you have something like the, um, Muhammad's flight to, to, uh, to heaven, Muhammad's the only witness to this. This wasn't a public event. Or when you have the stories about, um, some of the, the holy men in like ancient antiquity, Pythagoras or Papalonis or Tiana that were written hundreds of years later, we should probably be doubtful that any of those are, are accurate. They could just be legends. But there are eyewitness accounts to miracles today that are not far removed. And so when you filter the bad ones out and you look at the ones that are there, um, it would depend on what it is. So if it's a healing, which most of them are, it's possible that God could be acting out of mercy and that he could be doing it to, to heal, heal the person. Um, but again, I, I would go back to the point I just made of that. I think that either God is doing a religious message or he's doing an act of mercy acts of mercy are not necessarily tied to any particular religion but messages are and so if god is doing miracles to affirm to make people convert to a particular religion i think that that's something that stands out and so um just weird miracles you see people do like you know sadhya sababa who was a, a um an indian rabbi would just make watches and stuff appear in his hands which a lot of people just said it was sleight of hand but it's like even if it was true so what like it's, it's cool power but what does it what does that mean um, it doesn't really back anyone's claims of anything. So um, the context is really what's important. And so I think when we look at God backing up messages, that's primarily in the Christian religion, um, whereas most of the other ones in other religions are either just theologically insignificant and strange or they're acts of mercy that one could say is that some people also want to say that they're demonic. And while that's possible, I don't like going down that route because I feel like that's a... Um, you see the same thing of Jew the Jews saying to Jesus, of, oh, he does this in Beelzebub's name. And we know that they thought that he practiced witchcraft. So um, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to, to try to pull the demon card because people want to do that on both sides. So anything you don't like can be a demon at that point. I, it's possible, but I, I don't think it's the best answer. Yeah, well, it's super helpful. And thanks for the question, um, Prophet Skinny Man. Uh, we have a really hard question from Bram Rawlings, which says, if God real, why universe big? So <laughs> you're debunked, Caleb. Goodbye. I, I am. Yeah, Bram's, Bram's a great friend. Um, I mean, I think that we can predict that God would make a universe that has people in it. I don't think we can predict what kind of universe that would be as far as how big or how how old. Um, I, I think that it's actually a beautiful thing to see the universe evolving over time. And I think it actually parallels the, the reality of Jesus, because when you look at the Old Testament. God promises the Messiah, but the Messiah doesn't come for thousands of years and this is through a long process of violence and bloodshed and we look at the universe we don't see him making earth instantaneously we see this long process of of uh evolving laws that that create stars and then this and then eventually earth and then on earth life doesn't begin immediately you know it has to start off um simply and then develop into that into a very uh to a process that's very violent that eventually brings out humans and so just as chaos and and uh size brings about man so also does that bring about the son of man and so i think that actually is perfectly consistent with the christian god as far as how he would unveil things so mm, yeah well that's super helpful so thanks caleb um jose martinez asked um if you could recommend just one book on this topic what would that book be oh gosh that's a good question <laughs> um i would say for a pop level book 
Um, I know this is going to, they, they wanted one book, so I'm, I'm going to cheat here. If it's a pop level book, I would say either Lee Strobel's Case for Miracles is a good place to start. I would also recommend Craig, the book I held up earlier, Craig Keener's new book um, on, on that because it's a good area to start. He does have that scholarly book, but I, that, that's not something you should start at. And as far as professional books, if you want to go there, I would, my favorite one is uh, the book I mentioned earlier by Dr. Candy Gunther Brown. Um, called testing prayer and that one has a lot of medical documentation in it and she goes into a lot of the criteria and stuff so i would recommend that that would be my primary one if you want to look really in depth into it but yeah thanks Gil. we have a question from daniel lauer who said um can you talk about healing ministries and how hard it is to tie heal the healing to any particular person um did you show they have they have a gift of healing so looking at maybe like a more theological question here caleb yeah, that's a good, I talk about that a little bit and I still don't actually know where I think about that as far as whether people have the gift of healing, because I don't think that's easy to define. So when you look in the Bible, you see people who are just, it looks like they heal people left and right. You know, the disciples and Jesus did this. You don't see that many failures. Whereas people who even are able to heal people, it's always a, a swing and a miss, right? There, there, there's plenty of people who are not healed as well as there may be people who are. So I had a pastor ask, and I think it's a legitimate question. And he asked, is it like, is this a batting average? Is it like one out of every 10? Like how, what percentage of attempts do you have to get that are successful? And, and how many of it is just, you got, so you, you, you went to so many people where eventually one's going to get healed naturally just because you have a big enough sample size. Um, people have said that about like Benny Hinn, for example, thousands of people go to his crusade and a couple of people are like, Oh, I got relieved of cancer. Um, gradually it's like, well, yeah, I mean, you have that many people, you're going to have some natural remissions. Um, if I had to pick one case, sure. If I had to uh, pick one case of, um, someone who may have the gift of healing, I think the best one would probably be Catherine Coleman. She was a healer back in the seventies and sixties. Um, and I, and she, and granted, she didn't, she was not always successful. There were attempts that she couldn't heal. And there's a book about that, but there's also, and I can grab it here. There's also a, a, a book that was written back in the 70s, a little bit older, called uh, The Miracles by Richard Cassador. And he documents a lot of these. And he's a medical doctor, and he has this reviewed by, I think, nine other doctors as well. And there's a whole list of, of uh, doctors you can find, probably about 20 or more doctors who are eyewitnesses say, yeah, I saw Catherine Coleman heal my patients, and it's not explicable. And you have, like, x-rays and stuff in this book. This is of a, a, the pelvis of a girl who was instantly healed of cancer. The cancer wasn't instantly healed, but she was in a wheelchair and her pelvis was being eaten away. She was crippled and she was instantly able to stand and run around and never went like, and that wasn't just temporary, like placebo. She was perfectly healed from that moment on. And they did the x-rays, the tumor was shrinking and the bone was uh, restored itself as well. So that's one of many cases you could point to. Um, there's also been people who said they saw Catherine Coleman. There was one uh, research professor who was a doctor, I believe, at a university who uh, saw a baby with a clubbed foot as she was praying for it instantly straightened and the bone straightened, um, which is not, you know, clubbed feet have to be put in a cast over a long time or have to be given surgery. They don't just straighten like that. So, yeah, there are plenty of credible medically documented cases like that. Um, and I think that's interesting. And you can talk about other faith healers as well. But it really just depends on who it is. Like, I'm more skeptical of people like Benny Hinn, although he does have a book where he has medical documentation. But people like Kenneth Copeland and, and stuff, I, I don't really buy, buy it. And I have yet to see really, really compelling cases from them. Um, and sometimes I think when they try to heal people, it's just, it doesn't end well. So um, it's why I just say use, use discretion. Yeah, well, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a really like smooth and good interview. I've enjoyed it and learned so much. Do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say or how we can connect with you before we wrap up here? If you haven't already hit that like and subscribe button to, to Zach's <laughs> channel, you know, stay, yeah, stay you informed. Absolutely. Oh, I will say that um, 
on that channel I mentioned exploring reality uh thank Christophilus I believe I think it's tomorrow we're having a a live stream on the resurrection and this is meant to be like a um like a finale to his like year long series. So this is going to be a long, a long video that we're live streaming. So if you have any questions or objections, to the resurrection, we're going to try to cover it pretty in depth, probably for a few hours. So go check that out. I will plug that in. I will also plug in the uh, podcast that I co-host called proselytize or apostatize. I believe on Saturday we're having, we're hosting a debate between um, Eric Hernandez and Ben Watkins. If you know them on the existence of the soul. So I'm excited about that as well. So uh, go, go check those plugs out and yeah, go, uh, Go uh, check out the rest of Zach's videos if you haven't already. He's a he's a great guy. So, <laughs> well, thank you for plugging me so much, Caleb. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Your time. <laughs> I, I tried to. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And Caleb's book on the resurrection is also linked down below, so you can check out Caleb's work. But yeah, I encourage you guys to like, subscribe, and all that fun stuff. And if you value our content, please consider please consider becoming a patron at patreoncom apologetics. That's it, Caleb. Thank you so much for tuning in today. It's been so much fun, and listening to you speak is always a joy. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We value you all. Have a good one, and God bless. We'll see you next time.